This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. This is Season 7 of Office Hours, and we're focusing on the Holy Spirit, the Lord and Giver of Life. One of the dominant trends in global Christianity is the growth of the Pentecostal and Charismatic movements. A 2011 study published by the Pew Research Center's Forum on Religion and Public Life says that more than 500 million Christians globally identify as Pentecostal or Charismatic. American evangelicalism has steadily come under the influence of Pentecostal and charismatic theology, piety, and practice over the last 200 years. These assumptions and convictions have brought into question Reformation doctrines once considered basic. For example, the uniqueness, sufficiency, and finality of Holy Scripture as the rule for the Christian faith and the Christian life. David Vendrunen is Robert B. Strimple Professor of Systematic Theology and Christian Ethics at Westminster Seminary, California. He teaches our course on the application of redemption where these topics are addressed. He's widely published. His latest book is God's Glory Alone. This, along with other faculty titles, is available now through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. Hi, David, and welcome back to Office Hours. Thanks, Scott. Good to be here. Well, we have a lot to discuss, and it's a big topic, so we'll get right into it. For a number of Christians across the world to say, I believe in the Holy Spirit, is to say, I believe in continuing revelation beyond Scripture. So what do we do with that when there are 500 million Pentecostal and charismatic Christians across the globe, and in North America anyway, something like 500,000 of us? How can we be right and all those people be wrong? It's difficult to know how to answer a question about how can so many be wrong and so few be right. Well, let's go at it this way. I guess the first thing that we have to think about is how do we determine what is true? Do we determine truth by counting heads? No. Certainly, if we wanted to try to establish truth by a democratic vote, we would get a lot of very, very strange things. And so we know that the human heart is sinful, that we are attracted to many things that we shouldn't be attracted to. So ultimately, we as believers have to go back to God's Word. We have to consider how Scripture teaches. And that's true for the question of whether Scripture alone is our ultimate authority and whether there's continuing revelation from the Holy Spirit. It's certainly the case that Scripture says things very, very relevant to this. And although we may not be able to identify a particular scriptural text that explicitly addresses the charismatic or Pentecostal movements as we know them now, there are a lot of things that Scripture says that are very important for us to investigate and that I believe give us some pretty clear answers to the question. What kinds of texts do you have in mind that cause you to think that the scriptures really are God's final revelation and that we should not be expecting a continuing, ongoing, extra-biblical revelation? Well, I think there are a number of ways to answer that and to go about that investigation. But one thing that I think is important are scriptural texts that identify 
prophets as those who are entrusted by God through the Spirit to deliver inspired revelation to the people of God. And of course, that's true through the Old Testament, and it continues to be true in the New Testament, where we continue to hear about prophets and apostles, and the apostles were clearly prophets, the way they are commissioned and the way they are entrusted with delivering God's Word. And when we look at the New Testament, I think especially of a text such as Ephesians chapter 2, which speaks of the prophets and apostles as the foundation upon which the church is built. And we consider the fact that a foundation is something that is laid up front. It's not something that continues to be built as the building itself is built. Ephesians 2 tells us that the church is like a building. It's built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And I think in context, the apostles and prophets refers to New Testament apostles and prophets. And I think very important to recognize that Scripture speaks as though God is not going to give prophets for the entire history of the church, but it's something that he gives up front. Following the initial time, that foundation-laying period, God does ordain as Ephesians 4 says, pastors and teachers for the continuing building up of the church. And important to recognize that pastors and teachers are not inspired, infallible messengers, even though they are entrusted with preaching the Word of God to God's people today. In uh, Westminster Confession, chapter 1, section 6, it says, we confess, the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory— Man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in Scripture or, by good and necessary consequence, may be deduced from Scripture, unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelations of the Spirit or traditions of men. Nevertheless, we acknowledge the inward illumination of the Spirit of God to be necessary for the saving understanding of such things as are revealed in the Word, and that there are some circumstances concerning the worship of God and government of the Church common to human actions and societies which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence according to the general rules of the Word, which are always to be observed. What do you like about or appreciate about that articulation of what we confess to be sola scriptura, the unique authority of Scripture? There are a lot of things in that statement that are really, really helpful, and I think really important to highlight because I don't think we as Protestants, even we as Reformed people, always explain sola scriptura as well as we could. I think one thing that's very helpful to note there is that when it's talking about Scripture alone— It says that, therefore, we don't need new revelations of the Spirit or the traditions of men. We don't need those in order to stand over Scripture or to supplement Scripture in some way. And the way I like to explain that is that what that's basically saying is, is that we don't need other sources of special revelation. By special revelation, we mean that revelation of God that comes by the spoken word, by the prophets and apostles that's captured for us in the scriptures. What that's saying is that we don't need traditions of man. In other words, we don't need a pope or a magisterium in Rome in order to supplement Scripture or to infallibly interpret Scripture. We don't need new revelations of the Spirit. We don't need those modern-day prophets to come and to give us more than that. But I think what you see there in that statement in Westminster Confession chapter 1 is that Sola Scriptura does not mean that we don't need any natural revelation. In fact, it says that we still need the light of nature in order to order certain things, even in the church. If you think about reading Scripture, it really presumes that we have natural revelation. 
You read Genesis 1, it presumes you know what the sun and moon and stars are, what the sea and the dry ground is. It presumes that we have this knowledge of the world that comes through God's natural revelation. So sola scriptura does not mean, well, we don't need any natural revelation. It also doesn't mean that we don't have to use our minds that God has given us in order to interpret the scriptures, right? It talks about Christian prudence. We still have our rational faculties and God expects us to use them. We not only read and apply the explicit teaching of Scripture, but those things that are implicit, those things that are good and necessary consequences of what are in the Scriptures. And so we still have to use our minds. Another thing that I think is important to to note, though, it goes a little bit beyond what Westminster Confession 1 says, is that Sola Scriptura does not mean that we don't benefit tremendously from our fellow believers, both today and historically, that we do want to know what our fellow believers say about God's Word, about how they read it, how they interpret it, how they've applied it. What they say, those traditions, don't stand over the Scriptures, but we still want to learn from them. It's a very nuanced statement there that helps us to continue to appreciate the place of natural revelation and the place of Christian prudence while holding out for us the fact that it is always, ultimately, the Scriptures that are our final authority. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. And they were also addressing, weren't they, the ongoing challenge presented by the Anabaptists, who regularly claimed, as the modern Pentecostals do, and the charismatic movement to some degree also, to be receiving, continuing, new revelations from God. Some of the early Anabaptists criticized the Reformed ministers for standing on the Scriptures as their sole authority. They criticized them as ministers of the dead letter because they said they are continuing to receive revelation just like the apostles and just like, as you say, the New Testament prophets. Right. I think it's very helpful for us to recognize that when the 16th and 17th century writers of the Reformed Confessions and Catechisms were talking about these issues, they were interacting with the same kinds of people that we were. I mean, obviously Rome, but there were contemporary what we would think of as charismatic Pentecostal types who believed in the continuing revelation of the Spirit. So they certainly weren't naive about this, and there have been these kinds of movements throughout church history. I am sure that you've had this question many times in class or after class from students who come to you and they say, well, Prof, this is all well and good, but you say you follow the Bible. And 1 Corinthians 13 says, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, etc. And then verse 2, if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and have all knowledge, and if I have faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love. These verses seem to imply that we still have the tongues of angels and uh, we have continuing revelation and apostolic power and gifts. What do you say about these verses? When I'm lecturing in my Doctrine of the Holy Spirit course on the issue of continuing revelation, I spend a fair bit of time in 1 Corinthians, and that makes a lot of sense. This is probably the book in the New Testament that says the most about the gift of tongues and about the interpretation of tongues. And I think it's important to remember that there were these gifts in the early church, and they were manifest in the Corinthian church. But for one thing, it begs the question as to whether these gifts continue on here in the post-apostolic age here in the early 21st century. It's important to remember there that Paul is trying to highlight the surpassing greatness of the gift of love. And a lot of what he's saying there is saying that whatever other thing that you might claim is more important— 
whatever other thing you may value, it's not more valuable than love. And in fact, in that very chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, which is not a very long chapter, he makes the point to say that tongues will cease. And there's some dispute about what exactly the timing that he's thinking of there. In fact, I happen to think that Paul is really not trying to communicate the timing issue right there. They were asking a question Paul really isn't intending to answer there. That's right. He's not saying, okay, this is the date at which there are going to be no more tongues. But what he's saying is, remember that tongues is only a relative gift in comparison to this gift of love. This gift of love is a permanent gift. The gift of tongues may serve a particular purpose for a particular time, but you should remember what is most important. And that's really what Paul is getting at in that chapter. It's interesting, you know, I've often wondered, particularly in recent years, if people have missed, as I think you're suggesting, really the whole thrust of what Paul is saying here. And I think it seems that he is speaking hyperbolically. In other words, I don't think he's actually saying that there's any such thing as tongues of angels that we can have. He's contrasting the ordinary with the extraordinary, if there were such a thing. Even if you had X, whatever X is, and if you don't have love, you've really missed the boat. So that this verse, anyway, 1 Corinthians 13, 1, not to prejudge other places, really has nothing to say to us about the existence of a special kind of language, which then takes another gift to interpret. I think that's right. The way Paul thinks, and this is the way the other New Testament writers speak too, Whatever you claim to have that is of worth, if you don't have love, it's basically proof that you don't have whatever you're claiming. And I think that's an entirely plausible reading to think that Paul is not setting out to make the affirmation, there are all these other things. He's saying whatever other things there may be claimed, love is greater than those. So setting aside chapter 13 then, we get into 14, and he says, pursue love, yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts especially that you may prophesy. And so what's the setting there and what's happening? Why does he say that? In the bigger picture in 1 Corinthians, when Paul is giving his instructions about worship, and that takes up a good chunk of 1 Corinthians, one of the things he's really concerned about beyond the issue of doing things decently and in good order is that those who participate in worship need to understand what's going on and need to be able to say amen to those things that are being done and being said in the worship service. And so there was obviously an issue in the Corinthian church, just as a side note, the city of Corinth was a cosmopolitan city. There are people who knew different languages, who would have had different native languages, and there's some debate about how many of these different tongues being spoken in the worship service were extraordinary gifts, or were some of them just people speaking their native language that others didn't understand. But the point is, is that people were speaking tongues or languages in the worship service that other people couldn't understand. And what Paul wanted to be sure happened is that everyone would know what was going on in the worship service, could understand it, could believe it, could say amen to it. I mean, that's really one of the great points of corporate worship. You can worship privately, and no one else has to know what you're praying or what you're singing, but in corporate worship, we need to do it together. And so Paul is concerned to say that if someone speaks a tongue in the worship service, there needs to be someone who can make that known so that all people can hear it and give their amen to it. Be edified by it. That's right. And so when Paul is here talking about prophecy, you desire the spiritual gifts, especially prophecy, what he's getting at here, and he elucidates this elsewhere, he's thinking of prophecy in terms of this word that is known. It is spoken in the known language, a word from God that comes that people can understand. When people speak in a tongue, 
it really only becomes prophecy when it's interpreted and that it's communicated. And Paul goes on in chapter 14, and I think especially beginning in about verses 20 through 25, he puts the whole question of tongues and prophecy in a broader redemptive historical context that I think is very helpful for bringing some of these issues together and showing the temporary function of the gift of tongues in the early church. I never dreamed that there would ever be a crisis on the doctrine of justification among evangelicals since that's what's defined our faith historically. All evangelicals have embraced, historically, the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Until now. R.C. Sproul for Westminster Seminary, California. This is the first time in history that I know of professing evangelicals have negotiated that doctrine by entering into unholy alliances with people who categorically rejected. But that's one of the things I love about Westminster Seminary. This is one of the few seminaries in this country that is acutely conscious of this crisis and is zealous to maintain the central importance and essential truth of justification by faith alone. People are always asking me where to go. My favorite seminary in the United States, in the whole United States, is Westminster. Westminster Seminary, California. WSCAL.edu. 888-480- 8474 Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. Isn't it the case, too, Prof, that uh, just by using the word tongues, we create the impression that it must be something strange and exotic, when really that's just an archaic translation of the word that means languages or at least can be languages. For example, Acts 2. It seems pretty clear to me, and I think to others, that when the Apostle Peter spoke, He wasn't making the kinds of sounds that we today associate with the so-called tongues movement. He was speaking in known languages, but doing so under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And that's why people were puzzled as to what's going on. Has he gotten into the wine? It's a little early for that. Yet we hear him and he's speaking in our language. So then we set up this discontinuity. We call it tongues. And then, you know, you run it through the filter of 1 Corinthians 13, and then you get to 14, and we create this impression that there's something exotic going on. And it may not, as you were, I think, suggesting earlier, be as exotic as it might seem. Because we don't all today worship in cosmopolitan churches where there are six, seven, eight, nine languages spoken simultaneously. I know it happens. For example, if you go to Jerusalem, it's difficult to find a place to worship sometimes with other Christians, and you're bound to be gathered together with people from all over the world. But in your ordinary suburban church, most of the people speak the same language. That's right. And the way the modern tongues movement has spoken of that, you're absolutely right. It gives the impression that tongues is some sort of unknown heavenly language that no one has ever spoken before on earth. And I think it's very clear in Scripture that that's not how it's being used. And I think Acts 2 offers a very clear example of that, where people heard the apostles speaking in their own languages. That was the whole point. I mean, they actually understood them. Part of the gift was that people heard the gospel in their own native tongues there. And I think there's very good reason to think that the very same thing is going on in 1 Corinthians. These were languages that existed, and the point was not to give people a gift of speaking a hitherto unknown language that somehow just had some existence out there apart from ordinary human language development. So it's not the case then when Reformed people question these things that we don't believe in the power of the Spirit or that somehow we've given into the spirit of deism. It's really a question of what do the Scriptures actually say, read in their original context, in their original language, and read in their broader redemptive historical context. In other words, if we are cessationists, we are so because we're driven to it by Scripture, not because we've been possessed by uh, putting reason over Scripture. 
Right. I think in the modern situation in which there is such a large element of worldwide Christianity that believes in the continuing revelation of the Spirit, it tends to portray people like us in a negative mode. We're just here to deny. And I think that's a difficult position to be in. And I think one very important thing is that we don't just argue against the continuing revelation of the Spirit, but that we are very clear about the richness of our biblical historic reform doctrine of the Holy Spirit, because it really is a wonderful, rich doctrine. We believe that the Holy Spirit has been poured out upon us, that it's the Spirit who opens our heart in regeneration to receive the Word. We believe that it's the Spirit who applies that accomplished work of Christ to us. The Spirit is the one who is the seal of our redemption. He's the earnest of our inheritance. He is our sanctifier. He intercedes for us. He comforts and consoles us. He is the one who gives us understanding to read and understand the scriptures that he long time ago inspired. He's the one who makes the word and sacraments effective. I mean, we could just go on about the wonderful ways in which we believe the Spirit is at work. And if you read the New Testament, where does the emphasis upon the work of the Spirit come? Sure, you can find a couple of texts in 1 Corinthians in which Paul talks about this dispute over tongues in the Corinthian church, but you can read the vast majority of the New Testament and there's nothing about that. But you can hardly read at all anywhere in the New Testament except you're being confronted by the Spirit as the one who is our comforter, our sanctifier, the one who's applying the work of Christ. And I think it'd be helpful for Reformed Christians to be very clear about that and to go on offense, as it were, and to say, look, if you want to be biblical in your doctrine of the Holy Spirit, you're going to be talking about these sorts of things. You're not going to be obsessed about the question of tongues, which is at best a minor issue in the New Testament. One of the things that Westminster 1-6 comments on, and on which you have commented, is the work of the Spirit in the illumination of Scripture. So we do believe in the continuing, powerful, mysterious operation of the Spirit in helping us to understand the Scriptures. Not that the Spirit gives us inspired interpretations, but that He does operate to help us understand the Scripture. Explain that a little bit for us. Sure. I mean, we talk about the means of grace— And we believe that God has established certain means in order to enlighten us, to bring us to faith, to nourish our faith. We always say that those means of grace don't operate independently. It's not as if God has just dropped the scriptures or dropped the sacraments on us, and now we use them and they operate on their own. It's the Spirit working with the Word. It is to use the words of the Westminster Shorter and Larger Catechism. So what is it that makes the word effective unto salvation? What makes the sacraments effectual unto salvation? And the answers are very much about the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit at work that makes that inspired word effective in us. Because of our hardened hearts, our stiff necks, we're not going to receive the scriptures for what they are, except the Spirit is at work in us to illumine our minds and soften our hearts. We need to receive the word in faith and repentance and to receive the sacraments in faith. And if the Spirit is not working that in us, it's going to fall on deaf ears. So the Spirit better be at work in us if the word and sacraments are going to do the work for which God gives them. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. So, David, what happens to the Christian life when we lose sola scriptura? Let's say we give in to the temptation of joining this sort of mass popular movement, Pentecostalism or the charismatic movement, and so scripture isn't as central to us as it was perhaps earlier. What effect does that have on one's Christian life, do you think? Well, 
it's obviously hard to make overly generalized statements about the Christian life or the spirituality of any group with hundreds of millions of people. If you don't mind, I think it might be helpful to reflect on Rome for a moment, because, of course, it's not just the charismatic movement, but it's the Roman Catholic Church that doesn't believe in sola scriptura. And So there's some parallels there, right, with Mormonism, Rome, Islam, and to some degree the charismatic movement. So it's part of a broader collection of movements. Right. And if you look at Rome historically, it denies explicitly sola scriptura. I think it's clear. I don't think this is a controversial statement to say that Roman Catholics, generally speaking, don't know Scripture very well. Scripture is not central for them. And I don't know how many times I've had Catholic theologians that I've interacted with tell me, well, you just know the Scriptures better than we do. So Vatican II really hasn't helped much. I mean, it licensed them to read the Scriptures, and they do have Bible studies now. Right. Still, there's a kind of lagging behind. Yeah, I think that's obviously true. And it makes sense. If Scripture is not your ultimate final authority, why are you going to give it the kind of high and central place that we Reformed Christians think it ought to have? You ask the question, what does it do to the Christian life? What does it do to our spirituality? Well, I would say that to really to believe in it means that we are going to have a Scripture-centered kind of piety, that we pray the Scriptures, that we are meditating on Scripture day and night, and that it's Scripture that is filling our head and our heart with the way that we are supposed to live. And it's very hard for me to comment on what does it do to the spirituality of the broader charismatic movement. There are certainly many people in those movements that take Scripture more seriously than Rome does. I think we want to acknowledge that. Let me put some flesh on this. I'm old enough to have lived through the Kansas City Prophets movement and actually knew some of the folks who were involved in it. I was there when it happened. I'll give you an example. Let's say you have a restored 57 Thunderbird in your garage. People were getting alleged messages from the Holy Spirit saying, the Spirit told me that you need to sell that restored 57 Thunderbird in your garage because it's become an idol or something in your life. So my question is, what does that kind of spirituality do to something like Christian freedom or Christian liberty? Sure. I think also you might ask, what does it do to Christian prudence, which you mentioned earlier? You don't have a 57 Chevy or 57 Thunderbird in your garage, do you? No, that is true. Okay. That is true. (laughs) Uh, And I'm quite sure I never will. If you hold to a doctrine of sola scriptura— We believe that Scripture is the final authority, but again, as Westminster Confession of Faith 1.6 says, that doesn't mean that Scripture gives us an exhaustive answer to every relevant question we're going to have in life, right? It means that Scripture sets forth for us God's moral law. It certainly does give us infallible, incredibly helpful and important direction in our life that we are to obey. But Scripture does give us this liberty or this freedom in matters that are outside of God's Word. In so many things, the jobs that we have, the cars that we drive, the neighborhoods in which we live, we are not bound to one particular route. We are called to exercise our Christian prudence or our wisdom in order to make judgments about life, about what is best for us in our families and our own particular circumstances. I would say that this is a danger not only within sort of the explicitly Pentecostal movements, but even among a lot of evangelicals and some Reformed Christians who wouldn't embrace those ideas. The idea that God is somehow leading us in some implicit or explicit way, that there's some kind of continuing hints 
at least that God is giving us about making particular decisions in life that Scripture doesn't lay down. Such that you're obligated to what the Spirit revealed to me. Right. I mean, it seems to me that it puts a pretty heavy burden on Christians. I would say it's hard enough to make wise decisions about these things. Whom do you marry? What sort of education do you pursue? What kind of job do you pursue? I mean, those are important questions that are life-shaping questions. And we're called to exercise wisdom. That's an important responsibility. And we need the Spirit to help us to be wise. Absolutely. The Spirit, by His sanctifying work, makes us wise. But then you put on people the burden of trying to discern some sort of mysterious hint that the Spirit is giving us in what way no one really knows. It seems to me that that's a rather terrible burden to put upon someone, because how do you really know? We understand that when we make these sorts of prudential judgments, that sometimes we're going to make better decisions, sometimes we're going to make worse decisions. We know that. But to think that you have to discern the hints that the Spirit gives you. It's sort of taking us back to a pre-Reformation medieval piety, right? So that Scripture is no longer the unique sole authority, the final authority for Christian faith and life. It's a authority, but then I have this continuing, ongoing, if not explicit revelation, a kind of implicit revelation. Right. There's a shift from the objective to the subjective. And of course, if you put it in terms of you're trying to discern the spirit, well, that kind of makes it sound objective. But ultimately, I'm the one who has to discern the hints. I'm the one who somehow has to decipher the mystery. And that's very different from going to the scriptures and trying to read the scriptures carefully to understand God's law. And we know that the spirit gave the scriptures. There's no question about that, right? You and I, you know, may come to different conclusions about what the Spirit is leading us to do, but if we're looking at the Scripture together, then we really do have a Spirit-given, inspired, inerrant, holy revelation from God to which we can look together. Right. And I think this corporate dimension is important because it makes it the task of the church, and it means that church discipline can happen, right? I mean, we can preach the Scriptures— the pastors and elders of a church can hold people accountable in the churches to their faith and life as it's revealed in the scriptures. But, you know, how can I hold you accountable for the way you've been led? I have no access to that. It's just one person making a claim against another. And so I'm afraid that it does promote a kind of individualism that I think we're sort of prone to, certainly in the United States anyway. There's always that kind of individual temptation that I think we need to fight as Reformed Christians. And I'm afraid this kind of spirituality of discerning the mysterious hints of the Spirit is just going to promote that kind of individualism. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash officehours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.